Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, whose books include A Short History of War, talks to the critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about how the feudal system, differing weaponry and firepower and the size of armies shaped medieval warfare. Professor Jeremy Black, if we're going to talk about medieval warfare, one place to start is with uh, discussing the feudal system itself. Uh, because it's a form in which rather than the state directly controlling its armies, as happens later, um, to uh, some extent, royal armies are really subcontracted to uh, landed potentates. Um, and um, how, how does this, how effectively does this system really work? Well, let's start off. I think that's a very good start. But can we just also say that um, if we're thinking of war around the world, feudal Europe is just part of the aspect. Now, if one's looking for a broader pattern, you could argue that what you've got is regional warlords. And in that model, you could fit other societies as well. And you could suggest that the nature of loyalty in a system of warlordism, as it were, Um, and I dare say there are comparisons in modern drag gangs, I have no idea, is ones in which you pledge your loyalty um, to your boss, as it were, your overlord, um, and in return for that, and with your loyalty comes your help, which uh, in very warlike societies includes violence or the the ability to um, offer support in violence, And in return to that, you are legitimated. Your position is legitimated. Your rights to control a particular area are legitimated, whether that's shaking down people in the kind of glorified protection racket, or it's whether it's legitimating you as a a ruler of territory. And I suppose we could present feudalism in that light. I'm not sure that many of the scholars working on medieval Europe would particularly like to see their subjects compared um, to sociologists working on Mexican crime gangs. But I think um, one could look at a comparison with the key point being that whereas many criminal gangs are working against the state, not always is that the case, but many are working against the state, in the case of what we call feudalism, what we actually have is a pattern in which those who um, are part of this hierarchy constitute with the sovereign, the state. They can fall out. Um, they can, as it were, be held to have rejected what was appropriate in their obedience and their loyalty, in which case they are delegitimated, as it were, and they can take the penalties for that and indeed know, try and rebel. Um, So it's not an immutable position, but I think one could fairly say that that is a key position. Now, as you correctly say, there is a tendency to identify this with medieval Europe. I think one has to be cautious. I mean, the most powerful medieval European state militarily for much, though not all of the period, was Byzantium. And I don't think most of us would think of feudalism as a constituent of Byzantine military power. Um, But what one tends to be doing is the age-old pattern of taking Western Europe and holding that that in some ways is a paradigm for everywhere else. Of course, it wasn't necessarily a paradigm even within Western Europe. Within Western Europe, you have systems of public military action like the third in the Shire Levy, if you want to use that term, um, in uh, in England, both Anglo-Saxon England, but later indeed uh, being, as it were, revived. And you have, as you know, the idea that whereas in feudalism, control over land is what is given as the key return, there is also the argument that many medieval uh, political figures, whether they were sovereigns or maybe town councils um, actu- or, or lesser landlords, actually didn't necessarily raise 
their troops through uh, feudal benefit by, by paying people. And indeed, in some respects, payment is much more efficient. Um, you take the economic yield from whatever revenue source you got, and you pay somebody directly, you know, usually somebody who's then able to raise troops, um, but that the, as it were, control over land as a return for military service is not always to the fore. Where these systems of feudalism do exist, how much is this uh, uh, laid down in statute or in a kind of actual formal contractual arrangement? Or to what extent is it just a, 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 a custom and an expectation? Both. Um, I mean, it's both. I mean, it's been particularly associated, as you will know, with, as it were, a specific military and social group, the heavy knight, and the idea, or heavy cavalry, I should say, and the idea that this required a particular set of privileges, land rights, in order to produce that force. But it's worth bearing in mind that there were societies that had heavy cavalry without feudalism. Um, I think um, the we tend to obviously be particularly interested in this in England because um, of the notion of a social revolution following the Norman Conquest with the arrival of a new system of control and social order, one that was then written down in Doomsday Book, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that represents an abrupt shift. And indeed, there was an abrupt land revolution, revolution in land ownership, I should say, um, consequent upon the Norman Conquest. I think it would be fair to say that in most of Europe, there wasn't such abrupt change. And I think it's fair to say that even in England, though even more so in, in continental Europe, the situation was of, often much more ad hoc. I see. Um, I, I, and I wonder, um, uh, I wonder, given the, the sometimes ad hoc nature of it, if you're a, a peasant who is um, working the lands of, of a landowner, of, a, um, of one of the great um, aristocrats, I mean, how much training, if you don't really know what the expectation is, it's not like formal conscription. I mean, how much training do you get and, and what, what form would it take? Well, that, again, is fascinating. I mean, in the, in the sense of, you mean, if you're going to be an infantryman in conflict? Oh. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say not very much. You're not re usually required to have any particular skills. You might well be... Uh, I mean, you're not cannon fodder because we haven't got cannon yet, um, but you might well be, as it were, transporting supplies, digging ditches, you know, for part of siege work. Um, you might well be part of a, um, as it were, a mass of, of men uh, weaving... Um, handheld weapons of some type. Now, obviously, skill becomes more significant if you're going to be expected to deploy in a um, formation that operates as more than a crowd. So classic example of that um, would be a pike square Oh, and, uh, you know, the idea being that you should move in harmony, that you shouldn't, uh, as it were, completely um, foul up the people in front of you, behind you or at either side, and that there should be a moment of impact, which is relatively at the same time when you rush forward. Uh, you would also need specific skills and indeed um to a degree, weapons that you might not otherwise have if you were taking part in um, what we would call projectile weaponry. Now, projectile weaponry we classically think of as bows and arrows. Obviously, depending upon the cultures, you should also be thinking of slings or jav javelins throwing spears. Uh, so this can take a variety of forms, but you need to know how to do it. You need to know how to operate a sling. You need to know how to throw a javelin. On the other hand, if you have spent, if you're, say, you know, 22, and you've spent a number of years being used to hunting, you probably have those skills. 
Um, the majority, insofar as we can tell, would hold ha would not have projectile weapons, though. They would have handheld weapons of either the stabbing, the cleaving, or the slashing type, which again might not be all that different from the weapons you might use to protect your flock of sheep against a wolf or a fox, or to engage in, you know, via dagger or a knife, to engage in brawls uh, of an evening, you know, in order to protect or advance your interests or just to get involved in a brawl. Um, so the level of training there, if we want to use that term, was not necessarily particularly high. But again, we must be careful not to primitivize these method, these military systems. And again, I've, you know, I would always argue for the crucial element of fitness for purpose. There is no point training people for tasks they are unlikely to use use uh, so to be expected to do not least if they are full-time agricultural workers mm. and if they are full-time agricultural workers i mean where are they getting their or maybe the better question is who is paying for their um you know their helmets their their weapons a shield if they have a shield it, it, does that come from royal treasury resources or does that is that that's a requirement of, of their local um, uh, feudal lord to uh, to fund and supply? Graham, you are a really nice man, and you're clearly part of a sort of modern caring conservatism. I have to tell you, many of these people were not equipped with helmets or shields. As I said, their cannon fodder avant le temps. Now, you know, before the before the time before the time. No, uh, the um, uh, there is not any necessary um, um, what you might call a uniform or pr protective uniform of some type. Right, of PPE, for example. Uh, I think that's fair. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, circumstances vary. Um, you were better off if you were in the town guard of a prosperous city, let's say Milan, um, rather than being somebody who is engaged in sort of brawling warfare in the Eastern Pyrenees. So, you know, partly it's a question of the resources available, partly it's a question of the institutionalization of military service, whatever term you wish to use. Um, but reverting to this point, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily a less good, whatever you mean by good, or less valuable fighter if you are not lacking your helmet. I mean, after all, um, if you're what what you're wanting is nimble, uh, nimble movement up a rocky uh, side of a valley, um, uh, physical agility, uh, a sense of balance, stamina, uh, to use the hilarious modern phrase, situational awareness, those are all more significant than if you have a particular um, shield. I mean, apart from anything else with a shield, you're not going to be able to have a weapon in both hands or um, have a weapon for which you might require, as with a two-handed axe or a um, bow and arrow, which you would require both hands. Okay, so uh, you talking about nimbleness as you were a moment ago. Uh, brings you on to the subject of, of cavalry. And um, overwhelmingly, we're thinking of heavy cavalry. We're thinking of cavalry as almost an aristocratic pursuit, heavily armoured uh, men on horseback. Um, I mean, how typical was that? And also, why was there not the, the focus on nimble, light cavalry that we see in other parts of the world, uh, in, in Asia, particularly during this period? Well, really good question, and I, we're lacking a good history of cavalry. I thought sometimes of writing it myself, um, but we're lacking a good history of cavalry. Um, several points to uh, to bring out. Um, both heavy, heavy cavalry and light cavalry can be fit for purpose in different contexts, and those contexts are both geographical and tactical. So in other words, heavy cavalry is most useful in shock action, particularly against other heavy cavalry, against light cavalry that stands to fight, and against infantry, all right? It's very useful in all those cases. But heavy cavalry incurs costs, 
and also um, has less stamina um, than light cavalry. And light cavalry has particular value as a basis for uh, particularly um, firearms. So firing arrows is the classic one, although there's nothing inherently to stop you um, throwing a javelin or throwing spear from the back of a horse. And as you know, the situation changes with reference to technological change, to wit stirrups, um, it, but not just stirrups, uh, and stirrups shouldn't be seen as a one-shot change. Um, it changes with the availability of horses. It's no point conceiving of using heavy cavalry if you're in an area which is short of heavy cavalry or the horses that will take that kind of, uh, of that kind of soldier. And also there are environmental factors. So if you're thinking of Iberia, Spain and Portugal, Although you do sometimes see heavy cavalry there, it's overwhelmingly light cavalry, which in part is to do with less lush meadows, in part it's to do with greater distances, in part it's to do with the aridity of the summer. Um, whereas on the other hand, if you're looking, let's say, around the Ile de France, you're more likely to see heavy cavalry. So it partly depends on what environment you're in. And then separately, as you're aware, there is the question of the opposition. The, um, uh, the development of anti-heavy cavalry tactics is an important element of the uh, evolution of infantry in particular contexts in given societies. And I think it's fair to say, again, that depends upon particular uh, topography, as well as cultural factors and political factors. But, you know, you can see this in Czech, Scottish, um, Swiss success against what you might call cavalry forces, whether we're thinking of Bannockburn, for example, um, whether we're thinking of the victories of the putative William Tell and so on, whether we're thinking of the Hussite Wars of the early 15th century. And same with the, Ita the Italian Wars of the Lombard League, battle like Lignano, L-E-G-N-A-N-O in 1176. Um, so I think part of the question of the value of cavalry depends upon the context in which it is operating, rather than assuming a, um, as it were, a universal criteria. And on top of that, as you're aware, I mean, I try in my book, as I've tried in all my books, I'd like to think, um, to bring in the global dimension. I mean, cavalry as a global force is obviously grievously limited. There are no horses in North or South America or Australasia. Um, Large parts of Africa, the horse isn't of any pertinence or available, uh, not least because of the uh, sleeping sickness and other such uh, illnesses. In parts of what I would call Forest Asia, so we're thinking of Sri Lanka, Kerala, Myanmar, Thailand, um, you would be thinking more of elephants. Um, so one must be uh, very wary of assuming, of taking the horse outside its context. The greatest use of the horse is not, um, I would suggest, in whatever we mean by medieval Western Europe, uh, but actually, of course, the Mongols and the successor forces in, um, in Eurasia and the scale of the operations of the Mongols under Yengiz Khan and his uh, descendants uh, is remarkable. And it included subjugating major societies that were much more populous, most famously China, where Song China falls by 1279. Um, and then again, you could move forward and think about Timur the Lame or Tamburlaine, um, um, you know, whose forces had, you know, sort of were watering in the Aegean Sea by the beginning of the 15th century, just as in 1241, the Mongols, light cavalry, had defeated uh, the Poles, uh, heavier cavalry, Battle of Lignitz. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that light cavalry is necessarily superior to heavy cavalry. What it means is that in that particular context, it was. Um, and also, it is very much the Mongol use of light cavalry, on which I would say the best scholar in my mind is Timothy May, who I think has written very well on the Mongol methods of warfare and has shown how a lot was due to the um, understanding of and very careful training of horsemen and the extraordinary physical resilience of both cavalry, of both the horses and the men, um, I think are really, really important. And you get that in, for example, winter campaigning in uh, in, in European Russia, which you know, was no joke. Uh, and uh, so we're talking about an amazing force. Now, compared to that, the European heavy cavalry deployed in the Crusades, for example, sometimes successful, but it doesn't alter the paradigms of conflict in the Near East or Egypt. It's unsuccessful, um, badly unsuccessful when Egypt is invaded, uh, which I think is instructive. And although it is the case that there is, um, you know, people there tend to think of Muslim powers as only having light cavalry, which is rubbish. The Abbasids, for example, had heavy cavalry. Nevertheless, it is true that forces like the Mamelukes, who were ultimately responsible for bringing down the Crusader kingdoms, um, had were, as it were, relatively light in their cavalry, um, but that did not preclude them from having not only battlefield um, effectiveness, but also operational and strategic effectiveness. I mean, interestingly enough, the Mamelukes were also able to defeat the Mongols. Mm, uh, people talk about the, the stirrup being a, a game changer. Is that your view? Or, or no one's denying its importance, but can it be overstated? I think it's certainly be overstated. I mean, I've written about that in my book, War on Technology. War on Technology. Um, I mean, it provided a useful, a useful peg, rather like gunpowder provided a useful peg. Um, but I think it's fair to say that you don't need a stirrup in order to fire an arrow from the back of a horse. You don't need a stirrup in order to withstand the shock of conflict, you know, you know, the blow, the impact, uh, you know, force and uh, the reaction of the two of the um, conservation of force of hitting another line. And as you will know, there is both heavy cavalry and light cavalry prior to the use of the stirrup. Nevertheless, having said all that, the stirrup could be important for both light cavalry and heavy cavalry. Um, but I would be wary about, I mean, I actually would suggest that what we tend to underplay is the breeding of better, um, by which I mean more effective, strains of horse. Uh, I think that was significant. And again, we lack, I mean, there are individual works of importance. There was a rather good work by the Dutch scholar Jos Gomans years ago on the um, horse trade from Central Asia into Northern India, in which he argued in particular that the success of the Afghan states in India in the early 18th century was due to their dominance of horse sources. And I would say the same thing if you're looking about the significance of invaders of China, um, that the key element is not just that they have cavalry, that they also control the horse trade from the steppes. So I would say that element tends to be underplayed. Um, and I would, I would argue that if somebody is listening and looking for a good topic, the horse trade would be one that is really, uh, you know, one that's worth working on. Right, right. Well, from, from, from hoof to foot, um... Uh, the infantryman, if, if we look at firepower, um, let's first look at firepower of the feathered kind. Um, one tends to think of uh, the, the English longbowmen, the, the French crossbowmen, and uh, the, the shorter bow of the um, Central Asian archer. 
Yeah. How, how crude is, is that division of, of uh, archery? Well, it's not crude. I mean, there. Are, I mean, each of those though can be varied, particularly the Central Asian one. Again, I've discussed it at length. I don't want to repeat it in my war and technology, but I think you've got a roughly accurate um, typology. I mean, what I would say is partly what one has to think about is the. Um, delivery system in the sense of is it a person on foot or is it somebody on the horse? I think that's a key element. Um, you could use Central Asian bows on foot. And in fact, you know, the Chinese had a considerable number of uh, foot archers. But on the whole, you're generally thinking about using them from from uh, horseback. Again, you could use a crossbow uh, from a horse, but on the whole, that's not going to be particularly brilliant. And you want um, to use that uh, up from the from from you know foot position, standing on the ground, uh, which gives you more stability. Um, what I would say is that. Um, Bows and arrows, and I loved your phrase about the feathered type weapon. I sort of had this image of people throwing birds at each other, and I don't think you were thinking of that. Um, um, uh, bows and arrows um, emerge in a whole range of societies as the most effective missile. Uh, missile. They're not, though, necessarily the only societies. So, for example, in the wars between the Angolans, the native peoples of Angola and the Portuguese um, in the 16th century, the native peoples of Angola make effective use of throwing spears. Um, throwing spears, as you may know, uh, in a number of societies are given greater range and direction and reliability by the use of what are known as spear throwers, which is a, a handheld thing which helps to guide the flight. There are some areas, the Balearic Islands in, uh, in Europe, where there were you know, notably good slingshot uh, users, and they in fact were absorbed into or hired by the Romans for that reason. So I'd like to start off by saying, if we're talking at um, about archers, that we shouldn't assume that they are the only alternative as uh, to gunpowder, although you would be correct to say that by um, the 14th and 15th century, that, as far as Europe is concerned, is in effect the case. Yes, you'd be absolutely correct to say that. As you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the respective value of longbowmen and crossbowmen. Uh, longbows required a lot of training and physical strength. Crossbows are more expensive, a more complex piece of equipment in many, in many uh, senses. Crossbows were best from defensive positions, um, and so they were classically used um, uh, in Italian cities by town guards uh, trying to defend the city against people attacking from beyond, uh, firing from castellated positions. And that, in a way, was one of the uh, routes into using muskets or arquebuses in that context, because, again, those gave um, a defensive position. Um both were useful. Both in their context could be very helpful against uh, infantry deploying, as, of course, the Scots discovered, for example, at Falkirk, the Scottish spearmen at the uh, suffering at the hands of English longbowmen. Um, uh, English attackers uh, did badly um, at the, uh, from French or French-hired uh, French hiring, I should say, crossbowmen in the latter stages of the Hundred Years' War. But a lot of it, it's like that game, you know, what's it, stone, scissors and rock. A lot of it depends upon what you're putting up against your opponent. Well, if you're, um, if you're Sir Jeremy de Black charging towards me on your steed, heavily armoured, and I'm Baldrick Stewart with my longbow, and I fire at you at, let's say, about 100 metres, um, is my arrow going to pierce your armour? You're moving already, so you're not a stationary target. Is it going to pierce your armour, or do I just have to get lucky in, and hope it somehow finds a, a gap between your, your various armour plates? 
Well, that depends upon what type of armor I'm wearing and what and, and actually uh, how strong your fire is. I know that sounds silly, but that's actually an important point. I mean, the reality is, um, if you want to kill me and I'm wearing armor, uh, there are vulnerable points. They're not easy to aim for, but what you're doing is you're part of a formation which is throwing a weight of arrows forward. So all you need to do is for some of them to hit um, some people. And if you're up against cavalry, you'll hope that that would collapse the formation. You know, somebody, a horse comes down, obviously the people behind them are going to be in a mess. If you're fighting against men of arms, um, which is the, um, in other words, people with armour on foot, which is, let's say, what you saw at Agincourt in 1415, then... Um, if you can you can throw down your lot, you know, you can try and kill some of them with your longbow. As they close, you can throw down your longbow. They will have a blunt sword, and you hopefully will have a knife and be quick and cut my throat. Right. Um, Incidentally, the throat was a classic area, but it depends. It depends whether I've got armor that protects my throat, but the throat's a classic area of 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 uh, of weakness and vulnerability. If, if we look at the the armies of the Hundred Years' War, for just to to hone in on a specific example, what is the sort of proportion uh, in an army between cavalry, uh, foot soldiers with halberds and pikes? and foot soldiers who are archers? Um, well, there's no set ratio, as you'll appreciate, but the cavalry, if you're looking at the English army, is relatively modest, OK? And I think it's also where worth pointing out that a lot of the English men-at-arms dismount to fight. Okay. Um, incidentally, that's more generally a point. As I've said, if you're interested in cavalry, if you're listening, I mean, you can think, for example, like a battle like um, in the American War of Independence, like King's Mountain, in which the Americans, the Patriots, ride to the battlefield and dismount in order to, to fire against the British. Um, there's a whole range of factors why you might do that. In that case in particular, it's because it gives you a more stable firing platform. Um, but um, in the, if you're looking at the battles of the Civil War, sorry, the battles of the Hundred Years' War, if the English rest on the defensive, they don't have any particular need for cavalry. What they want is a strong defensive line which will resist attack if the opponents are able to close while still being able to deliver fire, fire against them. And that works. I mean, you know, it does work. The, um, the uh, I, you could say, the French in the great battles play into the hands of their opponents. But, of course, that's to ignore the extent to which if you are strong in physical contact weaponry and tactics, what you actually do need to do is to close with your opponent, which means you need to attack, which means you need to try and smash your way through. Now, that's true whether you're uh, the French at Cressy or whether you're Napoleon at Borodino or, for that matter, Waterloo. Um, it doesn't necessarily prove you're going to fail until it fails. Once it fails, it can ensure you have quite a high casualty rate. But for most, you know, most of these forces, a high casualty rate is acceptable as long as you succeed. Um, it's to, to use a later term, it's called crossing the killing ground. The killing ground is the area in which your opponent's firepower are going to, is going to inflict casualties on you, on you as you're closing with them. And as a result of that, we often see... You know, people saying, well, obviously, the idiotic thing to do is to attack. Um, and, of course, that comes to the acme. The uh, quintessence of that is our analysis of World War One. You know, and then, as it were, from the Battle of the Somme, uh, people have written, have read backwards and forwards to all other battles. And of course, this isn't helped by people like uh, the late uh, John Keegan with his face of battle, uh, arguing sort of in terms of immutable, as it were, techniques. Um, but it is worth bearing in mind that just as attacking armies have done badly 
taking very heavily casualties. You know, here, obviously, I was talking about the Battle of the Somme, or we were talking about the French Cressy and Urshin Corps. So attacking armies have also done well. You know, there's no inherent... Um, uh, there's no in- And ultimately, if you want to win... Um, the Allies in 1945 or the Allies in 1918, you actually, or for example, the French at the end of the Hundred Years' War, that is as a result of attacking. The difficulty with the techniques you were talking about in terms of the Hundred Years' War is that battles like Cressy or Agincourt do not force your opponent uh, to uh, meet your terms, and they are dependent upon your opponent taking the tactical offensive against you. You've taken the strategic offensive. You've invaded their space. You then sit on the defensive and hope um, to beat them. Well, that's a gamble often. And it's worth bearing in mind that if you look at the aftermath of Agincourt, the aftermath that's really important is that Henry V then goes on to conquer Normandy, which provides him with a you know, strategically significant base from which Paris can be threatened and makes him a much more viable ally to French opponents of the king, notably the Duke of Burgundy, etc., etc. So the equation, if you like, is changed as much by the Fool of Rouen, but again, looked at differently, the Fool of Rouen is dependent upon having defeated the French at Agincourt. So there are a multiple causation that is at play there. We've got to scale, of course, for the size of medieval populations in, in Europe. But, uh, I mean, in, in raw numbers, what sort of size of armies were the, what was the likes of Edward the Black Prince and Henry V taking to France? Well, if you're looking at armies in Europe in that period, and I'm always very hesitant because, you know, the sizes did actually vary enormously. But if you look at the really big armies, OK, Let's just think of that. The really big armies tended to be non-European. So if we're looking at the numbers involved in battles in this period, um, numbers are always imprecise. I mean, if, for example, if you take one of the greatest battles of the period of the Hundred Years' War, um, you've got the Battle of Varna in 1444 in what is now modern-day uh, Bulgaria. Now, um, <laughs> The strength estimates for the Ottoman army are between 37 and 60,000 men, and for the Christian army, 16 to 20,000 men. And I think 16,000 is the most realistic. Not an enormous number of men. If you then look at most estimates for Agincourt and Cressy would argue that the English army was emaciated by disease at that point and would argue that the number of effectives, all right, in other words, was actually below 10,000. Now, remember, there is the um, pattern at Agincourt where the, um, you know, you've got... Uh, this question of whom you're going to be able to get out to fight, the the uh, whether the sick will be able to to fight, I think you've got to really assume fairly small numbers, um, and I think that that is the case and should be sort of seen in that light, not as a failure, because how else are you going to sustain these these kind this kind of um, this kind of army? The English victories at so Cressy uh, in uh, 13, uh, 1346, Agincourt 1415, but, but ultimately uh, English defeats in uh, France by, by the middle of the, the 15th century. Uh, how to explain this pattern? Is it a question of generalship or is it a political question by which I mean the English ultimately uh, lost a sufficient number of French allies? Well, that's interesting. I mean, generalship's a factor, numbers are a factor. I mean, the English, I mean, I think, you know, as I said, if you're looking at effectives, I think Agincourt, it's about six to eight thousand is the general estimate given for the English. I mean, six to eight thousand men, you're going to lose people through disease, desertion, being killed. It's not very many men. 
Um, I think the very top estimate is 8,100, something like that. I mean, it's not very, very men, many. And of those, about a third are men of arms. So again, you know, you've not got a very large number there. Um, uh, what I would say is that the um, the command skills that you see under Henry V are sustained in some of the battles in the 1520, sorry, 1420s. Uh, there's a significant victory at 1424. Um, that the English find it difficult to maintain the capability gap that had given them an advantage over the French. And I think a lot of war is about holding or losing your capability gap. So I would say that their military and political capability gap is eroded significantly by the early 1430s not just because of Joan of Arc, um, and that once that has happened, it becomes harder. Now, that doesn't mean, as you may know, um, Charles VII um, uh, organises a significant train of artillery, and that helps him with a good some good commanders against a demoralised English forces between 1449 and 1453 to conquer first Normandy and then Gascony. Gascony is the area around Bordeaux. I want to tell you, it's not inevitable. You know, it's very easy to present this as inevitable. But if you were writing a pattern of inevitability, you might have said that the best general just shortly to come along is Charles the Bold of Burgundy. And he's, you know, and he does well for a while, and then is defeated, killed, in fact. So I'm not sure I would ever call inevitability the factor there. Um, the English were benefited from the rivalry between the Armagnacs and the Orleanists um, and the Burgundians in the early um, 15th century. They benefited from the deficiencies of two successive French monarchs. They benefited from the continued strength of um, battlefield terms of English bowmen. But there was nothing inevitable about either the English doing well or the, um, the French being defeated. I mean, I... I think I'm right in saying the French numbers are even harder to estimate for Agincourt because you've got to work out what on earth you want to do about counting the armed servants. But I think I'm right in saying most people would estimate the French numbers at between about 15 and 16,000 men. Well, you know, the margin of difference there is not enough to determine an inevitable outcome. And I think that's that's a particular problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's not easy for either side to. I mean, in, the English army had a considerable number of art of archers, and you know, um, but again, they didn't have. They wouldn't have had many more than five thousand there. Their opponents had maybe four thousand crossbowmen. So the English have a superiority in firepower, but in order um, for that superiority to uh, have its consequences, you you need the other side to fight into your 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 battle space. You're not. You've not got the English have got no uh, force um, strike force of mounted archers that can, as it were, harry their opponents, force their opponents out of their camp. Um, nor are they in the position, the classic position of um, which you see in many um, battles in uh, in Asia, for example, the Horns of Hattin, the Saladin's defeat of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, or the 1448 battle in which um, the Chinese emperor is captured, um, in which essentially uh, people are put in enormous vulnerability and forced into action uh, by a shortage of water. Um, now, that's not 
you know, so that the other side, the theoretically weaker side, making better use of the topography and the circumstances can win. That's not what's going on in a battle like Agincourt. What is interesting, if you want to compare Agincourt, there's a battle called First Panipat in 1526, in which Babur and the Mughal invaders of northern India fight the army of the Lodi Sultanate, which is the rulers of Delhi. And the interesting reason to look at that is because in some respects, the layout is quite similar. I mean, we've got to be very careful with these battlefields. They're not as well understood um, as uh, ones that come 150 years later. But essentially, what we're talking about in each battle is defensive positions between areas of woodland through which you couldn't, because they're dense, you couldn't really be outflanked. And it's how the defending force is able to use that position in order to counter the numerical advantage of its attacking opponent. Um, and... It, you know, I think that's what really are the those are really the interesting aspects. It's when you see how people take advantage of terrain rather than assuming there's some immutable factor coming from the particular technology they've got. Right. Well, I mean, we're understandably talking about war on land, um, but I wonder if we'd say something about medieval naval warfare. Obviously, ships are necessary to transport troops and supplies. And of course, over the other side of the world, you know, in 15th century, China has got massive fleets. But um, in Europe, we tend to think of naval warfare in terms of sh ships attacking one another much more in the, the 16th century than uh, the two centuries preceding that. Is it right to think of those terms? Were the major naval ship-to-ship uh, -ship encounters that uh, just we, we don't remember so well? Yes, that's a very good question. There were. I mean, I suppose for the English, the most famous is the Battle of Suisse, S-L-U-Y-S, um, which was in many senses the, the first major battle of the Hundred Years' War. But also, for example, um, in the war that follows the death of King John, when the French invade um, uh, on behalf of the Dauphin, the later Louis VII, um, uh, invade England, um, the uh, French fleet is defeated off Dover in a major, major naval battle. So there are battles in our Atlantic and Channel waters, and, um, you know, those are important. And there are later ones in the Hundred Years' War. The French use, for example, Genoese vessels. Then there's naval conflict in the, in the Baltic. That's important. And then there are very significant naval battles in the Mediterranean. Um, as you may know, there is a uh, uh, Pisa, Genoa, and Venice um, fight a number of conflicts in which there is you know, um, fighting on land, but the key element in many senses is either clashes between warships or the use of warships as part of amphibious operations. And then on top of that, um, it's also a significant factor in the um, eastern uh, Mediterranean um, with the um, Crusaders, as I'd mentioned. The best book I'd say there is one by the scholar John Pryor, P-R-Y-O-R, -R. and he builds into his analysis some very interesting stuff on wind directions and currents and how, how those help to affect operational and strategic parameters. But yes, warships are important. They're also important in... Um, sea-to-land hostilities, in other words, bombarding um, land positions. Now, bombarding can be a matter of sea engines, uh, sorry, siege engines. Um, they could be a matter, of course, if you go right the way back, of boarding. In other words, um, you, you, you have uh, something, the equivalent of a ramp uh, from which uh, troops can move from your ship onto either another ship or onto, you know, a fortress position against which you've brought yourself hard up against. Um, and if you go right the way back, I mean, Mediterranean naval warfare, um, in which you've got um, sea to sea, First Punic War, very significant um, in that. 
um, and sea to land, things like Alexander the Great siege at Tyre, for of, of Tyre, for example. So no, I, I would say I would say um, warships were important, but you're absolutely right in the theme you're, I suspect, you're offering, which is that we tend to underrate them. And that's paradoxical. I mean, there are some societies that were only effective in part because they could move their forces by sea. I mean, classically, so uh, Scandinavian societies, as in successive invasions, of England, uh, culminating um, with those in the 11th century by Sven, by Knut, by Harold Hadrada, William the Conqueror. I mean, what is often the case is we tend to underrate naval history unless there's a battle there. So we're going right back to this issue you very sensibly raised when we were talking about castles, which is this trade-off um, in terms of, uh, of uh, understanding the significance of a factor in the absence of a battle. Um, but if you're looking outside Europe, um, the largest scale operations were the two invasions of Japan in 1274 and 1281 are by the newly established Mongols, are enormous scale. I've written about those in my a history of naval warfare, enormous scale. As you may know, uh, both were unsuccessful, and a Chinese uh, fleet subsequently was sent against uh, Java. That also was unsuccessful. But those are the largest scale naval operations in the medieval period. But one of the reasons we underplay naval operations is because if you're looking at China, a lot of the major naval forces you can think of the Southern Sung here, for example, in the 13th century, are essentially deployed on rivers, the Yangtze most particularly, though not the only one. And what I would argue, what I have argued in my uh, book on naval warfare, is that riverine, deltaic, estuarine, and inshore waters are the ones that are absolutely crucial if you are studying uh, naval history for most of the history of the human species, but that we tend to obviously be fascinated by deep sea, uh, oceanic naval warfare, which on the whole was exceptional. I mean, and is largely a matter only of recent centuries. Well, um, we'll be uh, getting into the age of uh, the cannonball, which doesn't end medieval warfare, but does uh, transform it and take it through to another period, and that'll be the subject of our next podcast. But for discussing the high period of medieval warfare, uh, Professor Jeremy Black, uh, author of A Short History of War, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Graham. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.